Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And that's what makes us forget, you know, this disturbing world we're living in. Having one single thing is not actually make you a better, in this case, skater, but having a rich life. I think that generation became really a bit cynical about the, the exploitation of the athletes as a political tool. It was the ordinariness of being in the Olympic Village and just getting to know people as people that was so exciting for me. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today, let's talk about the Olympic Games. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the athletes of the Olympic Winter Games, Beijing 2022. Now, the Winter Games now underway in Beijing are a topic Pauline Lee has a special connection to. Pauline is an associate professor of Chinese thought and culture at St. Louis University. She's director of SLU's Lived Religion in the Digital Age Initiative and also director of SLU's Asian Study Program. But before she got her Ph.D., Pauline Lee was an Olympic athlete. She was actually the first woman to represent Taiwan in figure skating back in the 1988 Olympics. And she joins us today to tell us about it. Pauline Lee, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So, Pauline, I understand you were born in Pennsylvania. You've always lived in the U.S. What was your connection to Taiwan? Well, I was born in Erie, Pennsylvania. My parents come from China and Taiwan, and I grew up in Mankato, Minnesota. I do go visit Taiwan quite regularly. I'm a dual citizen, and uh, that's how I represented Taiwan. Okay, so you then grew up in Mankato. I assume very cold place. Figure skating was huge there. It was everywhere. That's what we did, yes, and ice fishing. And so uh, how, how old were you when you first took to the ice as a skater? Well, my babysitter took me and my brother uh, ice skating quite often um, with her 4-H club when I was about five years old. So that was my first time. And then I started um, a skating teacher suggested to my parents that they give me private lessons. So I started taking those and training more seriously when I was eight. Okay. So at eight, this kind of became a thing for you. Now, we okay. hear a lot about Olympic athletes today. Like, this is their entire life. I mean, on the ice for hours a day. Was it like that for you as, as an eight-year-old? Uh, it was a lot of hours, but it was definitely not my entire life. I would skate later. I don't remember at eight years old how what I did. Probably not the same thing, but maybe by 11, I would skate in the morning from like six to nine and then go to school, hmm. a normal school day, and then go to the ice rink afterwards and skate for a couple hours. So that would be about a five-hour training day. Um, it was never all my life, and I love hearing Nathan Chen, the now Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> I love when hearing him say that, Going to Yale and being a college student and having a rich, full life makes him a better skater. 
And I think that is true. Having one single thing is not actually make you a better, in this case, skater, but having a rich life. And your parents, it, it sounds like they did not have, you know, when you're a four-year-old, they weren't like, okay, let's get her in the Olympic training program. This was all kind of be, because of a babysitter. What was their perspective on the work you were doing as an athlete? They were always very supportive. They are not athletes themselves, so I actually, now I look at my daughter and my niece, and um, they're all really gifted athletes, so I think maybe there's something in the genes, but um, they're not athletes themselves. They were very supportive of whatever I was my brother and I were excited about and passionate about, um, whether it be violin or hockey or for my brother it was swimming. And for me it was um, sometimes soccer or stamp collecting and then ice skating, which was the thing that stuck for me. So you really took to ice skating. How did you end up being recruited to skate for Taiwan? My, let's see, I was, I believe, I, my memory, I'd have to go ask, my, my parents, who would know more precisely, historically, accurately, but I remember around seventh grade, I was going up the ladder uh, in the U.S. system, so taking the United States Figure Skating Association test, skating in state competitions and regional competitions. And, and then um, the president of the Olympic Association from Taiwan, or in the Olympics, it's referred to as Chinese Taipei, came to watch me skate for a couple of days in Minnesota. And when he was about to leave, he asked me if I might be interested in skating for Taiwan. And I didn't know what that meant particularly. I just thought that sounds great. And I immediately said, yeah, definitely. And so it was that simple. I mean, it doesn't sound like you had mixed feelings like, oh, I only want to do this if I can do this for the USA. Nothing like that. It wasn't for me, not in seventh grade. Um, I can totally see uh, people, skater athletes who decide when they're 17 or 18, which there are some skaters or athletes at the Olympics now, right, who decide at that age that that is a more self-conscious decision. For me, I was however old you are in seventh grade, 12, <laughs> and it wasn't this, I did not like, think about it too much. I just love skating and I want to do it. And it sounds like that decision, as, as quickly as you made it, that opened up some real doors for you. Oh, absolutely. It did. And I'm really thrilled I represented Taiwan. Um, there's like a hundred some countries in the world. And I was the first one to represent Taiwan in figure skating. I think the more countries that are in the Olympics, the more, the stronger, richer the Olympic spirit. So we've just tweeted out a link uh, to Pauline mm -hmm. Lee skating in the 1987 World Championships. If you want to oh. see her, yeah, Pauline, oh this goodness. is okay. yeah. So now everybody can find this on Twitter. That's at STL on air. Pauline, of course, uh -huh. now a professor at St. Louis University. Her past life was as an Olympic figure skater. So you're there in Calgary. I remember I that of Olympics so vividly. That was just a great Winter Olympics. Were you able mm -hmm. to enjoy yourself during this with all the stress that that's put on? Olympic figure skaters. I, I d definitely did. I think that being able to enjoy your Olympic experience is really important. Um, Kushi Yamaguchi, uh, who won the Olympics, uh, the following two Olympics afterwards, um, I had the same coach as she did my Olympic year. And I remember her saying she wanted to enjoy her Olympic experience. I think that's like, absolutely critical. Like, taking out that pressure um, makes you a better athlete, more competitive. Um, I, it was exciting. It was thrilling. Um, and not in a way I would have expected. It was the ordinariness of being in the Olympic Village and just getting to know people as people that was so exciting for me. 
So the ordinariness, this seems like just a bunch of extraordinary people. But when you were with each other, you guys were, were just normal young people. Absolutely. We were just normal young people. We'd be, you'd see Ekaterina Gordieva playing video games, and you'd see, I don't even remember the names of some of these Olympic champions that are eating their bagel or their scrambled eggs or deciding they needed both, um, or like showing off their injuries from the bobsled. It was absolutely, trading pins was a big thing. Um, yeah, normal the- playing cards, normal people. Those sort of ceremonial pins that you'd see on, like, people's mm-hmm. jackets, people were just swapping those, trying to get a oh, full yes. set? Yes, that's, to- that's, a, that's a thing, a ritual. Swapping so, pins with other athletes. So having been, I think, roughly a 10-year-old girl at the time of this Olympics, all I remember is America was just crazy. For There was Debbie Thomas, there was Katerina mm-hmm. Vitt. This was mm-hmm. this huge rivalry. Did you right. get to hang out with, with those two at all? Um, not Katerina Vitt. Uh, I watched her. Um, Debbie Thomas, I trained with her for uh, one summer, and then she also is a graduate from Stanford my same year, 1991. So I did, uh, and I skated with her quite a bit. Um, a thrill, totally thrill. United States women's figure skating was at the top. Easily could have been one, two, three, Jill Trenary, Karen Kadevi, mm-hmm. Debbie Thomas. And some of these skaters, Karen Kadevi, we probably don't remember um, really legendary skaters. Yeah, um, these, these were some great skaters. Yeah. And Debbie Thomas, I mean, she was just such a phenomenal athlete, and yet it felt like there was so much pressure being put on her that was maybe kind of a, a foretaste of, of where the Olympics have gone today. Do you think she was feeling that at that Olympics? Um, I can only imagine. There was. There was. The media turned it into a the dueling Carmen, mm-hmm. um, East versus West, uh, the politics, one versus another. Um, I would think that so I'm interested as a scholar in storytelling. That's one of my interests and the power it has. And I think that the media turning, putting on that big narrative onto these skaters puts up, I think, very difficult pressure. It also makes it more visible and makes your sport more um, beloved by a wider group of people, which is the benefit. Yeah, I mean, a lot of little girls got hooked on watching figure yeah. skating that year, for sure. But as you mm-hmm. say, there was really this East versus West narrative. This became political, that here was the, the skater from communist Eastern Europe, and here right. was America. Do you think there's a place for that in the games? Um, well, I've been thinking about that. I was wa- I've been watching the Olympics. When I skated in 1988, it was not a 24-7 um, media coverage. Um, I wanted to be shown on TV. Everyone says, right? You want to skate for on TV? And I wasn't. It was only the last two groups that are on, on TV. Um, it's a very different event now. Um, and I was thinking, is there, a pl- is there a place for this kind of politics? Uh, there's going to be. You can't help but there's going to be. But I really see the uh, Olympics through the eyes of not the scholar or not the citizen sometimes, but as the 19-year-old athlete that I was at the Olympics. And I, I, I'd like to see less of that and more the viewpoint of the athlete. We're talking today to Pauline Lee. She's an associate professor of Chinese thought and culture at St. Louis University, also directs its Asian Studies program. She was an Olympic figure skater, got to compete in the 1988 Winter Games in Calgary, um, and then retired from the sport after that. Now, we asked listeners, uh, we asked about your thoughts on this Olympics. We heard from Eleanor, who's in Lebanon, Missouri, and she had some pretty strong feelings. We would follow the games if we actually got to see the games. 
But what we see when we watch the games is NBC, talking heads, blah 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 and interviewing people. I don't want to listen to some little girl talk about her daddy taking pictures of her. I want to see her skiing. I want to see people skiing, skating, doing what they're doing at the games. I do not want to hear their biographies, their sob story, and I don't want to hear some guy's person in the opinions, you know, in the studio. It's ridiculous. They aren't actually covering the Olympics. So, you know, we've just basically given up. And that is Eleanor uh, calling from Lebanon, Missouri. She feels like we've given up. I do feel like some of these media narratives, they're what hooked me as a kid. Mm-hmm. But Pauline Lee, do you feel like maybe we've gone a little too far with some of the, the soft focus, you know, puff right. piece, following these athletes everywhere? Right. So I am so sympathetic to what Eleanor says. And she puts it more passionately than, than, than I, I would. Um, and I love that. Um, I'm totally sympathetic. I think that what we, I think that it is too much this big media coverage, and it takes away the voices of the athletes, and they are losing agency. And it's, it takes away from our ability to enjoy what the athletes, the pureness of that sport. It's like a lot of it's sort of quirky or obscure or niche, and we lose some of that when we're trying to make it sell with big media. And I think a helpful solution is just more voices, sort of, we want more people voting in democracy. We want more people covering the Olympics. And so one of my dreams when I was watching yesterday was I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if the athletes all videoed their own thing and then turned it into some editor who's representing them and then had on a different TV station the athlete's version of the Winter Olympics. And it sounds like um, you think that would be a much different version. They would tell their stories differently than, than NBC is doing it. Oh, I think it'd be very different. I think it'd be really exciting. Um, it could be in parallel then. You'd have lots of different voices. It wouldn't like, take away from media coverage. There's a huge benefit. They pour a lot of money into it, and it makes it so we can do these sports. Um, but it would give the athletes a voice. Or artists, like storytelling, like if Lin-Manuel Miranda went in and told the story, or some great filmmaker. Or like, um, I think that more stories, more coverage, more dimensions, would give us the Olympics that maybe Eleanor is looking for. So I really like this idea. Um, but I do want to bring this back to your Olympic career. You retired. Mm-hmm. You were 19. Do, do you feel like you had done what you wanted to do at, at Calgary? Yes. Um, at that time, I felt like I had done what I wanted to do. And um, I, have, I, I had done what I wanted skating, and it was time to retire. Um, it was also, at the same time, the kind of thing that skaters did. So Debbie Thomas went to one Olympics, Karen Kadavy, Jill Trenary. It was a kind of, you had your one chance if you were super lucky and worked really hard. And it went well or it didn't go well or you got what you want, but that was the one chance which went, meant, gave it even more of a magic. Mm-hmm. So there's this amateur quality to it that um, you don't have as much these days now that you can have sponsors. Yeah, and people want to sustain these careers and, and give right. it another try, maybe get multiple golds, not just the right. one gold. For you, was it a hard transition to then be a, a college student? You're there at Stanford, not skating, I, I imagine, no longer skating five, six hours a day. Right. Was that hard? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm very interested in drawing attention to there is the climb up a very steep mountain to get to the Olympics, no matter who you are. And for a medalist, 
a metal contender, an imaginably steep climb. Um, But once you get to the top, there is a very steep climb down that Mm. is no less difficult that uh, I would love to see more attention paid to that for the athlete's sake, for um, all our sakes. We all have, like, things, goals, aims. We, like, go for something big. And I think paying attention to, rich attention to the down so we can climb up the next mountain um, is something we might neglect. Sounds like maybe just a little bit of a mental health struggle to adjust to this part of my life is over. Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember Michelle Kwan, the great legendary skater, once said, um, she was giving a guest speech, and she said, I have a very hard time finding another place where I go on the ice and they say, or go anywhere and they say, representing the United States of America, Michelle Kwan, and like 10,000 people stand up. It's a big adjustment, absolutely. Um, it's a worthwhile adjustment, but a big adjustment. So, Pauline, for you today, I know you're very busy with with your work at SLU, but do you still ice skate? I do. I skate for fun. There was a short period of time where I didn't. You have to, I felt like, and I feel like still, you have to lay it down, something you love, in order to go find something else. And then I came back to it. I skate for fun now. Um, I have a bucket list of places. One of my friends and I want to go skating before we turn 95. Um, so like, give yeah. me an example. What's on this bucket list? <laughs> so I did go to the Rideau Canal and skated down the many, many, many mile canal in Ottawa, Canada, um, which was just fun in the outdoors and, and a canal. And then the Amsterdam Canal freezes over sometimes. I would love to go there sometime. Um, I would love to skate on a glacier. I saw a professional show of Brian Boitano and, and friends uh, skating on a glacier. That would be just such a thrill. Pauline Lee, I love that idea. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. We do need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to keep talking about the Olympics. We're going to talk to Susan Brownell. She's a professor of anthropology at UMSL, and she's also an expert on the Olympics and China. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're joined now by a different professor who also has a lot of great perspective on the Olympics. That is Susan Brownell. She is a professor of anthropology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. She's an internationally recognized expert on Chinese sports and the Olympic Games. She actually wrote the book on this. This is Beijing's Games, What the Olympics Mean to China. Susan, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So here's a really big question just to kick things off. What do the Olympics mean to China? Well, I think in 2008, everybody was clear that that was China's coming out party on the world stage. That was the meaning they attributed to it, and everybody else was on board that that was what it meant. But even when they were bidding, the meaning of this particular games wasn't quite as clear. And then I think the COVID epidemic complicated that. So it's, you know, it's not a coming out party. They've already arrived. Maybe to some extent, it's an affirmation that they are here and we'd better deal with it. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, they so they hosted the Summer Olympics there in 2008. Here they're hosting the Winter Olympics. That seems really unusual to have one city do both. Well, they are making a big deal out of the fact that Beijing is the only city to have hosted both the Summer and Winter Olympic Games. Although that is a model that Winter Olympic Games have been moving towards because it had started to outgrow outgrow the little mountain resorts that previously were hosts of Olympic Games. So. Even as far back as Torino, you had a pretty major city hosting the arena events, and then you had a long distance to the snow events. So, the model was already there, and you know, it, Beijing put together the bid, and now they get to brag that <laughs> they're the only city to have done this. Yeah, so they have these bragging rights, but at the same time, there has been some talk about was this really the best city to do this? That this isn't a winter sport city. How do you think they're doing so far? How are these venues holding up? Well, the bid process itself was a really uh, considered at the time a crisis for the Olympic movement because、um, a number of European cities had had their bids scuttled by negative public opinion and domestic politics. People just didn't want the Olympics in their backyard. Exactly,、uh, public referenda were coming up very negative.、Um, finally, Beijing was left in the contest with Almaty, Kazakhstan, and Oslo, Norway. And then, right before the final decision was to come out, Norway withdrew,、um, and that again was really due to the fact that there had been a shift.、Um, one party had lost power; the other had come to power. They wanted to reject everything the previous party had supported, and so they withdrew the bid. And that left what, at the time, was called two dictatorships bidding for the games. So probably Beijing didn't actually expect to get the games because normally cities have to bid at least twice before they have a successful bid, and they they were probably taken by surprise. And the rest of the world, you know, certainly the International Olympic Committee didn't expect it either. So that that was you know the situation actually that brought us these games. Although、uh, you know that said, there had been discussion in China for decades of hosting a Winter Games. Although for the longest time, the discussion was that it should be Harbin, which is sort of known as the Ice City in northeastern China. But they just、um, just never could、uh, see Harbin's infrastructure as being sufficient. They built it up over the years, but it still wasn't didn't have enough hotels, public transportation,、mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So Beijing stepped in, and you know, with China getting this Olympic Games again, of course, there's some controversy that comes with that. Now we talked to Pauline Lee, who had skated representing Taiwan.、Um, she didn't want to talk about the political issues around Taiwan's representation at the Olympics. That has been a controversy again this year. Can you, you give us the short version of that? You know. There is no short version because it's <laughs> Sorry, so、yeah. complicated, and I've written about it, and I've basically called it word games.、Um, but you know what happened was China was excluded from the Olympic Games for over 30 years, and that was because it refused to take part in an organization that accepted Taiwan as a member, because their position is that we defeated the Republic of China in a civil war. They fled off to this island called Taiwan. They aren't a legitimate nation, and you know people need to recognize us. So when China was finally readmitted, it was under what's called the Olympic Formula, and that was in 1979. And this requires、um, Taiwan to essentially be represented as a province of China.、Mm. That's what the mainland wants to happen, and so all the symbols have to. Suggest that Taiwan is a part of China, so it competes under the name Chinese Taipei, and under its Olympic flag, it's not allowed to use its national flag or national anthem. 
And this is not received well in Taiwan. And in recent years, they've become increasingly um, militant, uh, the public, about rejecting the Olympic formula. So um, something really interesting happened at this Olympic Games because one thing they have rejected is that they refuse to even march next to Hong Kong and the mainland in the opening ceremonies because that symbolizes that Hong Kong and Taiwan are both part of the mainland. They didn't want that visual. They, they don't want the visual. And in 2008, they objected like they always do. And um, a, an agreement was reached that they would stick the Central African Republic in between. This had to do with the um, order that determined by Chinese characters. And I noticed that in this Olympics, uh, they marched in and that, that was followed by Hong Kong and by China. So mm. that, that was new. And apparently they had objected. They didn't want to march. They threatened to boycott the opening ceremony. The International Olympic Committee told them if they didn't show up, they'd be punished. So they came. So, you know, this was something that's quite meaningful in that part of the world. Although for us, it's just kind of arcane and hard to follow. Yeah. But yeah, as you say, very meaningful to the people in it. Something else that I'm questioning how much meaning is with this. The United States announced a diplomatic boycott of this Olympics. Um, Australia, Britain and Canada soon followed. A diplomatic boycott. Do we care about the diplomats? I, I mean, I know a lot of people want to see more skiing. They want to have more athletes. Does it matter? Well, I'm glad you've brought up that that point because, you know, there's a, a really sharp-tongued spokesperson for the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's actually like a new genre of spokesperson. It's really sardonic humor. And he, in an official statement, said, nobody cares if politicians come to the Olympic Games. And I, I had to laugh because I do think he's right. I, I think history tells us he's right. Because in 2008, there was actually a boycott movement that nobody remembers now. It was called Boycott the Opening Ceremony, and it involved heads of state not, not attending the opening ceremony as a form of protest. And although the U.S. did go, President Bush actually took a large entourage and Australia went. But with that exception, all the nations who are doing the so-called diplomatic boycott now also did not send a head of state in 2008. And nobody remembers that now. So you do have to wonder if the Biden diplomatic boycott will um, be forgotten also. Yeah, it feels like the only boycotts that we remember are the ones where the athletes are told that they have to boycott the games. You competed in the Olympic trials in 1980 and 1984. In 1980, the U.S. ended up boycotting the games. Do you think there's lessons that we can learn from what happened that year? Well, we've already learned those lessons, actually, because, yes, um, I was a member of that cohort of athletes who personally had our Olympic dreams crushed, yeah. you know, because we knew before the Olympic trials in track and field that we weren't going to Moscow. And at that time, I was still an Olympic hopeful. I didn't make the team, but, you know, like that everybody else, I yeah. thought I had a chance. And so your dreams have been dashed. And I think that generation became really a bit cynical about the use of the Olympic game, uh, use the, the exploitation of the athletes as a political tool. And then that generation grew up and became the leaders in world sport. And one, of, one member of that generation was Thomas Bach, who is currently the president of the International Olympic Committee. So the result of that negative experience is that if you look closely, you realize that since the end of the Cold War, there has actually been no national boycott at all. There hasn't been any head of state that has called for keeping athletes away from the Olympic Games, and there hasn't been any national Olympic committee that has done that. 
So the calls to actually keep athletes away are coming from advocacy groups, basically, and the odd politician like Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> but as far as athletes go, as far as the Olympic community, it sounds like there's a consensus like this is not something we want to do again. The consensus is really strong in the sports world itself with among athletes and among those people who are now leaders, you know, who are former athletes. But actually, there is obviously a pretty strong consensus even among governments and heads of state. Because people haven't been boycotting. Right, exactly. So what's going on with this diplomatic boycott, obviously, is that they're able to use the word boycott, but it's not that kind of boycott. And it's kind of threading a fine needle and still making a political statement without doing... Because these days, if you kept all the athletes home, I, I think it would... Um, not be supported by public opinion. Hmm. So there are always a lot of questions about China when it comes to things like civil rights, human rights. Um, A member of China's Olympic Organizing Committee had warned that foreign athletes uh, may face punishment for speech that violates Chinese law. How is that issue playing out so far? I know these Olympics are still young. Well, you know, I was in Beijing in 2008 in the year leading up to and including the games. And I think what happened then is happening now, which is that once the opening ceremony arrives and the sports get started, the politics um, kind of dissolve into the background. Mm-hmm. And then as um, now there were there were suggestions that there might be some athletes who might want to protest on behalf of China. And there was a lot of discussion about what would happen to them. The fact of the matter is most athletes don't want to engage in political protests, but if they do, like we did have athletes um, expressing some support for the Black Lives Matter movement last summer in Tokyo, and of course we've had the famous Mexico City 1968 Black Power protest, Mm -hmm. but those were athletes protesting conditions back in their home country that directly affected them, Mm -hmm. and I think athletes are a lot less likely to protest on behalf of um, groups in another country, you know, when it doesn't directly affect them. So I'd, I'd be a little surprised whether we see any um, protests. I mean, maybe a few statements in press conferences, which is now allowed. That was not allowed previously. Hmm. But I mean, unfurling a, a, a Tibetan flag or something like that, I don't think we'll see that. So, Susan, we've been talking a lot about the politics. And as you say, this does, you know, this comes down to the sports. Have you been riveted by the sports so far this year? Oh, I have. Yeah. And I I think it's really amazing how the athletes always rise to the occasion and the magic of sport, in a sense, takes over. And that's what makes us forget, you know, this disturbing world we're living in. Um, But that said, I I do think it's pretty difficult for them. These are difficult situations with fewer um, spectators in the stands. I'm a great figure skating fan. In fact, I knew Pauline Lee previously, you know, when we had discussed figure skating. I, I, I recreationally skate myself. And um, you just really notice that even even the TV broadcast isn't quite the same, you know, without the masses of spectators in the stands. And, you know, maybe that explains the drop off in viewership a little bit. So, um, you know, we haven't discussed the COVID pandemic, but that has really changed everything and probably had a negative impact. Been a big issue for these games. Well, Susan Brownell, I want to thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your expertise here. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And Susan is a professor of anthropology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis and an Olympics expert. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. 
understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.